Hello and welcome. You guys, there's many times in which the Christian worldview uh, is faced with some challenges, maybe, is faced with uh, some difficult decisions. And we as Christians, no matter if we line up as Democrat, Republican, wherever our our views are, we have to be able to take a step back and see what what does the Christian worldview have to say? What is happening in our culture? And how are we as Christians? How does uh, supposed to act about it? How does scripture inform us about how we're supposed to view different issues? And so that is going to be the conversation today as we look at the Equality Act, understanding what it is, what it's talking about, how the Christian worldview applies, how it should be informing our decisions, informing our cultural engagement, and hopefully helping us to live faithfully as believers here in at least America, which this is specifically applying to. So if you're overseas, sorry, today's conversation is a little bit more United States focused, but um, hopefully giving you biblical principles that can apply to wherever you're at uh, in maybe slightly different ways. And so uh, if you're joining us for the first time uh, watching or listening, my name is Ryan Polly. This is a weekly show where we challenge or I challenge you and we together think deeply about Christianity, understanding what we believe, why we believe believe it, defend it faithfully, and then faithfully live it out. And so today's conversation, looking at the Equality Act and how do we live faithfully in our culture. And my guest today is Neil Harden. Neil is an old roommate of mine. Uh, He's been on the show many times. He is my expert in all things political and theology, trying to understand where the intersection of politics and theology come together. Neil has his Master's of Theology from Talbot School of Theology, Biola University, as well as a Bachelor's of Science in Metallurgical Engineering from the University of Utah, and um, writes and blogs at his website, neilharden.org, as well as another website, website that I put below, and I'm forgetting it right now. What's the other one that you're writer and editor for? Well, it's neilharden.com, not .org. I don't oh, know sorry, dot .com. But, um, but advocatesfortruth.com is the other. There we go, advocates for truth. So uh, Neil has joined many times before to discuss different political issues that uh, he spends a lot of time researching and looking into and then applying a biblical worldview, theological framework to that issue. And then I get the advantage of inviting him on the show and saying, Neil, help us know how to, what to think about this. And so Neil, thanks for joining again. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so... Um, Really what the point of this is, is to look at some basics of what the Equality Act is, what it's about, what it's saying, if it were to get passed, what would happen, how does a biblical worldview relate to that, as well as really desiring to answer any questions that you may have about it. So please send in your questions and try to uh, do the best we can to answer those questions is the expertise that Neil has in, in different ways and what he's looked into, and hopefully we can answer as many as we can during this time together. So Neil, why don't we just start off really quickly for those who say, I have no idea what this is. I've never even heard of the Equality Act, but for whatever reason, I clicked on this video. Um, what is it and why are we talking about it? Yeah, so the Equality Act is a bill. It just passed in the House a couple weeks ago, uh, but it basically seeks to update past civil rights legislation to explicitly include uh, sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes or protected titles Uh, in which if someone is discriminated on that basis, then they could bring a lawsuit against various businesses or what what have you. So um, most of what the Equality Act consists of is replacing the words sex, because sex, meaning biological sex, is already a protected class. You can't discriminate on whether someone's a a man or a woman. Mm -hmm. But it redefines the word sex to also say, including sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, So that's the basic idea behind the Equality Act. 
Okay, so I, I feel like maybe just from the start, kind of, it's like, well, <clears throat> is what we're going to be talking about is say that we should be able to discriminate against someone because of their sexual orientation. Like, I'm not going to serve you food because you're gay, or I'm not like, uh, how, how, what does that look like um, practically? Because I don't, I, I, I would say that's that's inappropriate. If someone walks in and. For example, like, you know, Jack Phillips case, and I have a bakery and someone says, I want a cake. And I go, nope, I'm not going to serve you because of your sexual orientation. That would be inappropriate. So what exactly are we talking about of why is it a problem to say you can't discriminate against someone because of their sexual orientation? Well, the conflict that comes into, or like, or at least what it comes into tension with is religious uh, freedoms. So Christians or even Muslims or Jews or others who hold to a traditional view of sexual morality, of gender, um, who say, you know, there's only two genders or that marriage ought to be between a man and a woman. Um, like, for example, Jack Phillips, like you mentioned, he only wanted to bake wedding cakes. He was a, a baker and baked wedding cakes and says, you know, my conscience says, my beliefs say that marriage is only between a man and a woman. And I don't feel comfortable or it would be a violation of my conscience in order to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. And so that's kind of where the tension comes in here. I think most of us and even Christians would probably agree that we shouldn't be engaging in what's called invidious discrimination. And basically what that means is like discriminating someone for no for no reason. You just have some animus or some mean-spiritedness against a group of people for for no reason. But you know, there is some discrimination allowed under the law if there's an appropriate reason for doing so. Okay. And so that's what we're trying to look at is like, so it seems like what you're saying is that in the Equality Act and what they're trying to pass is saying there is no appropriate reason to discriminate. Um, and so any form of discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity uh, is inappropriate. And as Christians, we should say, no, there are some instances where it could be appropriate to discriminate based on those uh, reasons. Would that be a fair kind of beginning point? Right. And what the Equality Act does, which is it's not just trying to protect LGBTQ individuals or individuals who identify as LGBTQ. It explicitly repeals or says that uh, RIFRA, which is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, there was a bill passed in 1993, I believe. And it basically said that if the government is going to violate someone's religious liberty rights, that it has to take the least restrictive means of doing so. And the Equality Act specifically says that uh, the RIFRA cannot be used as a basically as a legal defense for why you might refuse service, for why you might um, not hire someone, um, why you might discriminate, in essence, against someone who uh, based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Okay. Now, to kind of also get an understanding is that this has not been passed into law yet. Can you kind of maybe give a little bit of information exactly where is this and and what is currently taking place in the legislative process? Yeah, so it passed the House, like I mentioned, a couple weeks ago. Um, All the Democrats voted for it and three Republicans voted for it. Uh, It's currently, I don't believe it has a date yet for the Senate, but um, right now it's the, the, the debate over is whether it can pass the Senate right now um, or whether it'll get stuck with the filibuster because likely okay. all 50 Democrats would vote for it. So it's a matter of can you get 60 votes in order to overcome the filibuster? Got it. Okay. And so, I mean, is it seeming like it's a pretty straightforward thing or is there still some question about it? Like uh, the chances are actually not very likely that it's going to pass or does it seem like this is definitely something in our future that we will be having to kind of work through in a legal level? It, it, that remains to be seen. I, 
I'm hoping that it will that the filibuster, the threat of the filibuster, will stop it. Um, but I think there are some more par parliamentary uh, mechanics within the Senate itself. That's like, okay, well, are we going to try and pass this as its own bill? Are they going to try and put it in a budget bill? And if they do it that way, then it only needs 50 votes to pass. So I think that that's still being worked out. Okay. Now, to kind of maybe find some common ground, um, is there anything like what what? What would be some points where like a Christian could say like, that's good, I support that. Or are we saying this is like 100% completely, utterly bad and wrong, or there's some like good parts? Because often, and the reason I ask this is often like bad ideas are snuck in with good ideas because if it's all bad, then it's very obvious like, oh, that's, that's something we should reject. And so a lot of times it's like, yeah, there's a lot of truth here, but it's it's slightly twisted or it's off or it adds a few extra things that we want to push against, but we can still hopefully point out where some truth is of like, hey, maybe these are some problems that need to get fixed, but this isn't the way to do it. So I'm curious what you would say is maybe some some positive. Is there any positive here that that we can kind of take from this and learn from? Yeah, I'd say there are parts of the Equality Act that Christians can agree with. Like it, it, since it updates a whole list of different civil rights legislation, like not all of the things it seeks to update are necessarily bad. Okay. Like it's also adds that like LGBTQ individuals can't be discriminated in things like a credit application or jury selection. And I, I'd say Christians should agree like, yeah, no one should be discriminated on that basis because jury selection and credit application has nothing to do with your sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, and I'd say even in the ma vast majority of like employment cases, you know, I, I, no one should be discriminated on the basis of whether they're LGBTQ or if they're seeking to buy a product from a business. Like there, there's nothing intrinsic to most businesses where sexual orientation or gender identity would have to come into play. Yeah. So I'd say okay. those are some things that we can probably agree with. Yeah. So I'm curious that you mentioned that because I would agree, like if you, you know, if you're running some random business, the fact that a, that an employee is gay it, for, for many ways doesn't have an impact on that business and, and should not necessarily be involved in the decision making process. I'm curious if you could give an example of when would that be an issue? When would that um, create an issue where we should be able to say, no, I'm sorry, based on your sexual orientation or gender identity? this job isn't available. Is that ever appropriate? And when would that be? Uh, like for instance, a, a Christian school like Biola, where we both went to, um, they mm -hmm. have a code of conduct for their employees and say, you know, you have to hold to a Christian view of sexuality and gender and marriage and so forth. And if this bill were to pass, then it would uh, basically set up a lawsuit for, you know, since Biola takes federal funds for student loans and other things like that, it would set up a lawsuit where it's like, okay, well, Viola's accepting these funds, but yet it's discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. If someone does not or chooses not to live in accordance with their code of conduct that they might have for their employees or for their professors or um, other faculty. So that's just one example. So I had this conversation with my high school ethics class today, actually. Um, it just so happened to be, it's crazy how these interviews line up and it's right along with what I'm talking about in my class. Um, but the example given was um, that you have a, a college group, right? So there's a Christian ministry on a college campus. Should that ministry be required to have um, gay affirming or even like atheists, right? It's not just against the LGBTQ community. It's just, should that Christian club be required to have an atheist leader 
Or can they say, no, in order to be a leader of this club, you need to agree with our belief system because we are a Christian club and this is what we stand for and you should agree. And for many times we, we look at that and we go, yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and, and so one question that one of the students asked was like, and I flipped it. And I said, well, what if it's a pro LGBTQ club and let's say some gay hating individual said, I want to be a leader of your club. Should they be required to let the gay hating individual be a leader in their LGBTQ club? And the student goes, well, why would they want to do that? And that's often my question. It's like, yeah, why would you? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. why would why would you want to be a leader of an organization that has a fundamental different view than you? And so, but the issue is sometimes people are, or at least people are trying for that, or people are advocating, I should be able to do that. Whether I want it or not, it should be allowed. So I don't know if you have any yeah. kind of comments to speak into that idea of like, why, why would people want to... Uh, if Biola is a Christian university standing for a biblical view of sexuality, why would someone who holds to opposite views try to get hired and, and claim discrimination if they don't? I mean, it'd be hard for me to speak to the motivations of why someone might want to do that. Um, I, at least the comment I wanted to make was more like every organization has some kind of values that go along with it. You know, whether you're talking about a business, whether you're talking about a school, you know, fill in the blank. Every organization holds to some fundamental values. And like a Christian school like Biola, it will have probably a longer list of values that it holds to or maybe a different set of values than what most people might want to hold to. But I mean, I've heard stories of like students who will apply to Biola just for the purpose of filing a lawsuit to try and basically get us to not be able to hold to our Christian values. And so, yeah, there's something about like a Christian institution, which just some people do not like the fact that an institution that abides by Christian values exists and they don't want to see that. Right. So you often also hear of this kind of comment made um, that this is really targeting Christians. Now, it doesn't say it in the law, but it really is because there are people, as you mentioned, that have admitted going to Christian businesses, Christian universities, whatever, a Christian institution, and and then when they're not hired or when they're rejected, then they sue them or whatever. But you often don't hear the same response of if a Christian were to walk into a gay affirming business and ask for something Christian and they get rejected or, or, or any other kind of institution. Um, are those stories just not being spread? Is that, I mean, are you aware of those things happening or does this seem to be really more so targeting the Christian or institutions that are not accepting kind of the LGBTQ gender identity legislation, which the Equality Act is pushing? Or is this tr- really trying to create a, a standard that applies equally to everybody to where if there's an atheist club and I try to walk in and be a leader, they're going to require that atheist club to let me in as well. I mean, it probably tends to work out a little bit more one way, like Christians having to be the ones to discriminate, because most of the time, if a Christian won't want to join an organization that goes against their values, so and they won't want to seek to, uh, you know, we, generally we have a, we you can work this into a conversation about tolerance, but generally Christians will be more tolerant of someone having their own organization doing their own thing, you know, so long as they kind of leave us alone type of thinking. So I I don't know too many Christians who do or haven't heard stories of Christians who like go into Mm. those kinds of organizations for the purpose of trying to get them to change their values. Yeah. And I think that is important is like, 
what I'm trying to advocate and what I am teaching my students and what we went over today is this idea of like, my goal is to have that freedom of conscience for all people. That the LGBTQ club should be able to say no to the Christian or to the to the gay the, the gay hater who wants to come in and be a leader. They should be able to say no as well as the Christian should be able to say no if you don't align with those values. And it should be this tolerance and this uh, freedom of conscience and freedom of belief applied equally to everybody um, versus it seems to be. Um, and again, like you can do more research, but it seems to be kind of going in one way more than the other because, and, and I think you, you said it well, as Christians, hopefully, we as Christians believe in freedom of belief for other people. And if that's what you want to do, mm-hmm. then we should allow them to do that. And if they don't want to bake the cake for you, go find a different person who's going to bake the cake for you um, versus, you know, others that it's kind of more a little bit cracking down of you should have to do these sort of things. Um, okay. So getting to your article. So if you are following along on YouTube, I put the article to what we're looking at. Um, I love the way that Neil writes these articles. And I want to point you to his website, neilharden.com, because uh, with a lot of different issues, and this being one of them, um, it's very kind of straightforward. Here's what it says. Here's what is written to the law. Here's what it's talking about. And then he will often go into, here's what the Bible has to say. And then in that, normally, here are some some principles that we need to live by and we need to hold to. And so uh, if you want to follow along, we're going to be kind of working through the article that he wrote and some of the things that he said. And so uh, you mentioned here in the Equality Act, um, some of the things that we've already seen, or some of the things that it, uh, it's trying to pass is, number one, forbidding religious nonprofits from acquiring their employees to abide by the organization's belief about gender and sexuality. So we've already kind of discussed this a little bit. Is there something else you kind of want to add to this of what it would look like practically if this were to pass? Yeah, basically, it would set the groundwork for a host of lawsuits against Christian organizations, Christian nonprofits, Christian businesses. Uh, The only thing that would probably be kept safe, at least for now, would be churches themselves. But as you know, like churches often, you know, they are nonprofits, you know, they're, they don't, uh, they can't be taxed by the government, but I, I suspect that they would at least be protected by the Supreme court and by um, other um, federal ju- judicial rulings. But, you know, it would basically set a, set a precedent for like, you know, Christian adoption agencies, for instance, is another one. Yeah. Uh, we just had the, one of the largest uh, Christian adoption agencies say that they will now start adopting to gay couples. Um, as opposed to holding to their traditional values of only adopting to parents with a father and a mother. Um, so, and I think part of the reason they did that, even though I can't obviously speak for them, but you know, some, sometimes it's just kind of reading the tea leaves and seeing where our culture is heading. It's like, well, we don't want a lawsuit and to have to shut down our business in order to hold to this value. So, um, yeah, there's, yeah, there's that issue. I mean, talk about women's sports. That's going to be another, um, big issue because Title IX, a lot of federal funding goes into Title IX for women's sports. And uh, the transgender part of this bill, it's not just um, it, or the uh, it's not just uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual individuals. Like the Equality Act specifically says that, um, you know, indi- an individual shall not be denied access to a shared facility, inclu- including a restroom, a locker room, or a dressing room that is in accordance with that individual's gender identity. So it specifically calls... Uh, or says that an individual can't be discriminated on that basis. But if you think larger, like allowing trans or like transgender women who are men who identify as women uh, to compete in women's sports, uh, it was interesting. Sean McDowell just had a doctor on his program. Uh, I was about, about to mention uh, that. That, that. 
yeah, that very issue. And it's just astounding how much advantages a man, including transgender women, um, have in competing with women's sports. Like the average man, I think he said, will perform better than like 94 to 98% of women uh, in, if they are just to move over. So it, it would be a catastrophe for women's sports for if this were to, to pass. Yeah, and, and I'll put the link to that show in the description below after this interview. I think if that's an interesting to- a topic that you're interested in, I, it's something that you should watch. Uh, th- yeah, th- it's Sean McDowell, uh, YouTube channel. He had a, a guy come on who just did his doctoral dissertation on uh, transgender sports. And the way that he approached it was fascinating. But some things that stood out to me is that he said there are over 6,000 biological markers distinguishing men from women. This is not just simply an XY chromosome and there's some, it's like 6,000 different biological markers from, from muscle density to muscle strength to, to fast twitch muscles. And so then you just get math, you know, uh, science equations of, you know, density, you know, or mass plus speed equals that power. And so what that can do, and then shared some crazy things like I was unaware of, of how the law is written in California. And this is according to him in the video, but how the law at least is written in California is that the same athlete can compete in a male competition and a female track and field competition on the same day. So you could run mm-hmm. in the 100 meter men's race and the 200 meter women's race. I don't even know if the 200 meters are race, but anyways, um, in the same day, based on how you identify at that moment, that's at least how the law is written. Um, but then, yeah, he talked about how on average, like it, you, one of the most decorated Olympic female athletes in track and field has about 2,000 men in high school and college that break her record every year uh, as being one of the best. And so he, he finished with a fascinating observation where he said something to the effect of, it's because we discriminate, it's because we separate out the genders in sports that actually provides equality. Because now every year there's a a woman's champion and a men's champion. There's a female gold medalist and a men's gold medalist. And it actually provides that equality. Whereas if we just made sports gender neutral, um, just simply based on the fact that most men uh, biologically are faster and stronger and bigger than most women, you would have 94 to 98% of champions would be men and it would be unfair for women. And so it's like, because we separate the genders, this is actually providing, um, this is providing equality and allowing women to achieve these great accomplishments. And so um, I thought that was fascinating. It was a really cool interview that definitely you guys should check out. Um, Okay, so you also mentioned number two, uh, forcing these same organizations to accommodate those with certain gender identity into sex-specific spaces, such as women's shelters. So is that different than what you just talked about of of sports and using locker rooms and restrooms, or is this something different? Uh, That hits on more of the kind of locker room aspect of it. But like women's shelters, like there's a case up in Alaska where um, a church had a, they used part of their facility as a women's shelter to house women who have been abused or just needed Hmm. some place to go to. And, um, and there was a, a, a transgender woman who came and just made a lot of other women uncomfortable so much so that one of the women said she went basically went outside and slapped in the cold weather because she was just so uncomfortable being around a man Hmm. you know he was like a man identifying as a woman and maybe presented as a woman it was just so i mean she had gone through so much and Hmm. the church uh wanted basically wanted to say no and there's a lawsuit i believe about that but those are the kinds of situations that uh, can happen if we don't have or they said at least if we as a society can't agree on like what gender is um, you know, if we lose that, then, or at least we can't d- make some distinctions or some 
good types of discriminations in order to protect those who are vulnerable. Absolutely. And, and that's, again, I, I, hopefully the heart is, is not trying to eliminate people from places that they should be, but often it's protecting those who are vulnerable, protecting those who need to be loved. We need to care for people who are hurting and in some ways, um, you know, that plays out in this way. Um, we kind of already talked about one of your, your examples of the adoption agency. So kind of moving through that list of things that you talked about this says is you talked about uh, shutting down creative professionals in the marriage industry for not creating material for gay weddings and compelling businesses to engage in for forced speech, supporting messages against their conscience. And so I think there's a lot to talk about here. And I even, again, discussed it with my ethics class this morning of if you open a business as a bakery, shouldn't you? Like, is it okay to ever say no to someone? And, and where is that line? And right, so there's a clear difference between saying, no, I'm not gonna sell you a cake because you're gay versus participating in an event that you mm -hmm. believe to be wrong, right? And I think in a very, another clear example of this is if you are a photographer and a gay couple comes and says, will you take a pictures of, I don't know, um, my kid's birthday party or something, I don't know. Um, like that's very different than being a photographer and being asked to take pornographic pictures of someone. Like mm -hmm. to to say no, like no, I'm not going to help you because you're gay, versus what you're asking me to participate in. I believe is morally wrong. Like to take, I'm not mm -hmm. taking pornographic pictures. So can you maybe speak a little bit into this idea of how this would shut down those creative individuals? So if you are involved in photography and and bakery, this is something we need to to pay attention to and on how this could affect our businesses. Yeah, so if you're talking about any creative industry which could remotely be connected to the marriage industry, so photography or cake baking or um, wedding planning or anything like that, if, I mean, this bill basically says if you're going to engage in these types of businesses or have a business which, you know, t touches the wedding industry, then you have to be ready in order to do both same-sex weddings and heterosexual weddings. Like, there, you can't make any distinctions no matter what your conscience says and that's kind of where the rub is it's like okay i want to be able to use my creative gifts and talents in a way that is honoring to god and honoring right. to what i think he wants me to do with those talents and so this sets up again this will set up a conflict where like with jack phillips and um many others like the florist i think in washington had a similar situation where she didn't want to use her flowers for a, a gay wedding and got sued. And thankfully, like both of those were upheld uh, on the religious liberty side of the Supreme Court. Um, but this, uh, I don't know, with, with the Bostock decision last year, and we can get into that a little bit, or you can look that up, but it's basically was trying to do the same thing of taking civil rights um, act of 1964 and saying that sex includes sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, so it, it's, yeah, I, Maybe I can go to the, the second part of that, which is the compelled yeah. speech, which I, I think is even more um, onerous in some ways, because there's a case. And by the way, this list on, on my blog, I took from uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a Christian legal organization. They often go to the Supreme Court to fight these um, kinds of uh, issues. Um, but they represented a, a person who owned a T-shirt printing business, and they got an order for basically printing a bunch of shirts for a gay pride festival or a parade of some kind. And they said no and got sued for it. And so it's like, okay, well, at what point do I have to violate my conscience in order to serve a customer who wants a, a, you know, these t-shirts or can they 
go to someone else. Yeah. And, you know, the example that I, I think is often helpful because to look at this in different ways is, is what if there is a, uh, a gay run um, T-shirt company and you and someone wants, you know, Westboro Baptist Church wants them to print shirts saying, you know, gay people are all going to burn in hell. Like, should they be required to print those shirts? Or what if there's a black owned company and they get a T-shirt request saying white supremacy is the best? Um, should they be required to print those shirts? And I think in all those cases, we should say, no, that, that person should not be forced to print a message that violates their conscience, that, that goes along with something that they believe is fundamentally wrong, racist, inappropriate, whatever it may be. Would, that, would those also be fair examples? I think so. And I, I think it goes to show a basic principle about government and conscience that if government is going to violate your conscience, that it needs a really, really good reason to do that. And that's kind of what uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act ta- in that passed in 1993 basically said is that like the government needs a compelling interest of some kind in order to violate your religious conscience. And, you know, to be fair, there have been times in us history where that has been needed. Um, Like, uh, I don't know, people used to make religiously based arguments for racial discrimination. Um, But thankfully, you know, Christians now very, very few hold to any such views. So it's like they're, the higher principle of honoring the image of God in every person takes precedence over whether someone has a religious conviction for racial discrimination. Right. Um, or even back in the 1800s when, uh, you know, Mormons were migrating out to, to Utah and they practiced polygamy, the United States passed a law saying, you know, you can't, um, you know, you can't practice that in federal territories. And even though that was their religious conviction, uh, their Supreme court held that they had to abide by that for the sake of the common good and for the sake of, um, the women and children. So uh, th- there are cases in which, you know, conscience can and probably should be overridden. It's not an absolute principle. Uh, you know, scripture even talks about how our consciences can become corrupted. Right. Uh, so you, even though it's not an absolute principle, I, I think it is, you know, the government needs a really, really good reason in order to violate it. Yeah. And I, I think this is a really good point to kind of try to help maybe the the Christians who are watching to recognize that we are also fallible human beings and it's possible for us to get something wrong as well. And so in the same way that we are called to, to, um, to call out the government and to call out leaders who are going against God's law and who are calling us to do something wrong, for us to stand up and say, I'm not following that. There is a higher law. There's a higher authority that you are disregarding. You are wrong in this. I'm following God's law. I think there are times, as you mentioned, where maybe Christians got it wrong or a different religion or someone else with a different conscience is getting it wrong. Their conscience is going against natural law or God's law. And sometimes it's the government or it's the the secular world that sometimes goes, what are you doing? And and for us to, to, to be able to say, oh, hold on a second, let me evaluate this. Is it possible that actually, even though they're not believers, they actually have a more biblical view uh, on this than I do? And I need to change my view. I need to change my theology um, in the same way that we're expecting the government to change their view when they go against God's law. And so I think this, it's not saying that Christians are always wrong. It's not, the government's not always wrong. It's, hey, I'm a fallible human being. It's possible that I have incorrectly interpreted scripture and I have a wrong view on this that maybe someone needs to call me out on. And we should accept that. In my view, we should accept that criticism from within the church. That's where we should be calling out our brother and sister and engage in the church. And we call each other out when we have these wrong views. And if the church has messed up and it's coming from the outside, we should still be able to say, 
oh yeah, their reasons for this actually are good. There is a justified reason for for coming against my conscience because my conscience contradicts the laws of God and natural law. Yeah, and and that goes back to the fact that morality and truth is objective. You know, it's based in God's character, based in his nature. It's not merely based on, you know, what the majority of people at the time said. Um, you know, it, it was racism wasn't right at the time just because the majority of people agreed it was. It was always wrong and always has been wrong because right. it violates the fundamental principle of being created in God's image. So, you know, we, we believe we can call out those things that we can and should change some laws over time because they, again, are violating objective principles. All right, that's so good. All right, kind of moving on in your list, and, and I, I like to see that you've included this because I read this on the Alliance Defending Freedom website as well. ADFlegal.org is their website. But you talk about here how the Equality Act, um, <clears throat> if it passes, it includes punishing teachers and other public education for not using preferred pronouns of students. And on the ADF website, if you click on uh, what they have there on the Equality Act, they actually give the example of Dr. Nicholas Merriweather, who had a student, a biological man, a male, who said, you are going to refer to me as a female, and he refused to do so. Uh, The student complained, took it to the school. Uh, The school pretty much made a compromise where the, with the professor and the professor said, I'm just going to call this person by their first name all the time. Like I, like when I talk to you, I don't need to say he, this, it's like, no, I just call you by your name. I, I don't use that, that third person pronoun for you when I'm talking to you. So I will just always refer to the student by their first name. Uh, the student, as they mentioned here, claimed that that was not enough. It was not enough to simply not call the gender pronouns, but they actually have to use the gender pronouns. You can't just use my first name instead. Um, and that last it was reported says, um, uh, right now he's at risking of losing his job for not complying with the official's unconstitutional demands. And so you mentioned that as well here of you could be fired for not using preferred pronouns. And I've heard of examples, other examples of this happening. Um, anything else that you kind of want to mention on this part? Yeah, just the fact that the Equality Act isn't merely trying to say, um, it's not merely just about trying to protect a specific group, but it's trying to compel those who disagree with it to say, you know, you have to abide by, you know, because it makes sexual orientation, gender identity, a protected class, it compels you to violate your conscience that it's not merely just saying, oh, you can't discriminate. It's, oh, you have to you know, if you're a professor at a university, you have to say this. If you're a teacher at a public high school, you have to say this if the student wants to. There's no room for disagreement. There's no room for compromise. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, this also applies to like businesses. If you work at a company and that company says, um, we are going to participate in this gay pride event and you have to participate. Like should, as an employee, should we be able to say, no, I'm sorry, that violates my conscience. Um, even though I work here, I'm going to step out. Or is that something that like is legit? Like, okay, you're going to get fired then. This is something you have to do. Uh, so we're also seeing in that sense of you, it's it's that compelled speech. You have to promote this. You have to support this. You have to wear the shirt or else there are these repercussions rather than truly allowing kind of that equality. And I'm curious, like, how is that equality? This is called the Equality Act. How is that equality when I am forced to say things I don't believe in yet at the threat of being fired? Well, I guess it's probably in the same way in which, uh, you know, it, 
you know, it said that President Biden was supposed to be a unifier, but it's, yes, we're all unified so long as you already agree with me hmm. type of type of deal. You know, it's, it's hmm. equal, but only if you already agree with me. Yeah. Um, all right. So one more thing here, and then we I do want to jump into the kind of what does scripture have to say about this? And we've talked a lot about obviously Christian positions, but we haven't really brought as much scripture into this that we are going to do here in a moment. Uh, we talked about Women's sports with transgender women. We've already discussed that. Lastly, your last point here is coercing doctors to provide gender transition surgeries who are morally opposed to performing such surgeries. And again, I had this conversation today with my high school students where if you become a doctor, should you be required to perform whatever procedure that you know job normally does? In the same way, I use the example of how there are pharmacists who are pro-life and they are forced to stock um, morning after pills and contraceptive and those sort of things in their pharmacy, even though they believe those things are immoral, morally wrong. And it's like, should we say like, hey, if you're going to be a pharmacist, you have to provide all of the available medicines and drugs. If you don't want to provide that, then don't become a pharmacist. So if you don't want to do transgender transition surgeries, don't become a doctor. If you're going to become a doctor, you have to be willing to do that. Yeah, and it comes back again to the conscience principle of like, when is it appropriate for government to violate your conscience? And like, if the Equality Act passes, then this will affect a lot of, there's a lot of faith-based hospitals. Like, I don't think people yeah. realize the degree that, you know, most hospitals were founded by Christians or by yeah. missionaries or by, you know, something along, some, something along those lines. And a lot of hospitals are faith-based and don't want to provide things like gender transition surgeries or abortions or right. other things which we fundamentally believe are either, you know, abortion murdering a person or like gender transition surgeries. It's you're doing harm to a person by affirming something which is not true. And literally you're changing their body to, reflect something which is not true and you know the equality act would again all these examples from my list they're it's they're not most of them aren't explicitly mentioned in the bill it's just this is probably what is going to happen should it pass yeah um, but yeah again it comes down to that conscience principle again yeah. So tell me if I'm crazy in this, but I, I like to try to think of as many examples as I can of situations where we all would clearly say, well, no way. And I think that those examples are, are more similar to this than we often assume. So what if you're a doctor and someone walks in and says, doctor, I want you to amputate my arm. And you go, well, it's a perfectly functioning arm. There's nothing wrong. There's no disease. It works perfectly fine. Why would you want to cut it off? I just want to cut it off. I, I don't want this arm. It's my body, my choice. You have to cut it off. Most of us would say to that doctor, like, no, the doctor has every right not to perform that amputation. But at the same time, someone walks in with perfectly functioning reproductive organs, and we're saying they have to cut those off, or there's a perfectly healthy growing baby inside, and the doctor has to remove, cut that baby out and remove that baby. And so in my side, like, how is that any different than someone walking in with a perfectly functioning arm and saying, doctor, you have to amputate my arm? The doctor should be able to say, no, that is doing harm to you. I know you don't think it's harmful. This is what you want, but this is objectively harmful to you. And I'm not performing that sort of operation. Uh, it just seems like th those are very much more similar than we want to think, except for the first two are very political. And so we go, of course, you have to do it. The other one, we all clearly recognize, no, you don't just cut off your arm. And we go, exactly. You shouldn't be forced to do that just because someone wants it done. I, do you see that as being similar comparison or am I crazy here? No, I, I think that's a good example. I mean, the 
foundation of modern medicine is the Hippocratic Oath, which, you know, says do no harm. Like that is the foundation for any doctor when they, you know, take that Hippocratic Oath, when they become a doctor, that their goal is to never do harm to a patient. Right. And so it's like, again, these gender transition surgeries, like I'd say for like 99.9% of them, a person's coming in with like perfectly healthy reproductive organ, but says, no, my, my gender identity is different. And so I want to destroy my body in order to align it with my gender identity. And it's like, well, if we're not, if we don't give doctors the, again, we're not saying that people can't seek that kind of treatment. You know, we do live in a, in a free country where people are free to seek that, but we're saying no people, doctors who have a moral conviction against that shouldn't be forced to do that. Right. Yeah. So it, you can go find someone over there that will do it for you. Um, now I, I think in that, before we get to the biblical view, I think a distinction that has to be made clear is for many people, this sounds a lot like the segregation where it's like, my restaurant's not going to serve you food. You can't eat here, but that one down the street will serve you. How is that any different than saying, I won't perform this surgery. I won't perform this operation. I won't bake you that cake, but that bakery down the street will bake you the cake. Uh, And this is, I think, why they've tried to include this into these other forms of its unjust discrimination. You can't say because of your skin color, you can't eat here, but that restaurant down there, like that's not a good option. That's not a viable solution of, well, they'll serve you. So it's okay. Um, How is it different of saying, I won't bake the cake or I won't perform the surgery. I should have the freedom of conscience to not serve you. How is that different than someone saying, well, I have the freedom of conscience, not wanting to serve the person food who is a different skin color, a different race. I mean, part of it comes down to the ethical system that you're using. Um, but I'd say biblically, it it's, comes down to the fact that we're created in God's image. You know, being a, and part of being created in God's image does include our different physical characteristics, like our, our race, our skin color, our and our gender as well. And so when a lot of people like to make the equivocation between race and sexual orientation, or gender identity, but we have to realize that sexual orientation and gender identity, you know, what, how we perceive ourselves in our head are not fundamental intrinsic characteristics to who we are as people Mm -hmm. created in God's image. Gender, which, you know, I'd say second to, you know, in Genesis one, where it talks about how God created us in his image and the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And I'd say second to the characteristic of being in the image of God, gender is probably the second most fundamental characteristic of what it means to be human. And so, you know, sexual orientation, and gender identity are violating those that is violating that very principle of what it means to be a human created yeah. in the image of God. So again, it, there's a superficial similarity there. Obviously there's a distinction, there's a discrimination being made, but you have to ask on what basis is that discrimination being made? Not just simply ask, is there a discrimination being made? Yeah, I think that's really good. And so I want to get into some of the biblical reasons because I know we're running a little bit short on time. Um, And so if you guys have questions on any of this, if you have issues that you would like to bring up, uh, any pushback, uh, please comment in, in in the chat. And if you're listening after the fact, um, you can send an email and I can address it in the live Q and a, um, in the future. But, um, what does scripture have to say? So, so now we've kind of talked about the legal thing. And so now this is hopefully where no matter, no matter your view as a Christian, no matter if you, uh, where you land politically as a Christian, we should all be able to come back into what does scripture have to say and how does scripture inform our decisions. And so the first thing that you talked about here is the image of God in Genesis chapter one, God making man in his image, um, 
in the image of God, he creating him. Also, we see this in Genesis chapter 9, that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man is in his own image. So how is it that, if you could briefly say, and I know you said a little bit already, that the image of God gives value and dignity to all people? Yeah, I mean, when it, back in Genesis 1 where it says, you know, in the image of God, he created him, like that's referring to every single human being. And for God's image to be imputed on us, you know, to violate that image is almost in a sense to be directly attacking God himself. So it's no small thing for humanity to be created in God's image. And there's a whole, there's a lot of different theories on what exactly the image of God is and isn't. And I don't know if we want to get into that here, but in, in the Christian tradition, it has always been the basis for you know, striving for human rights, for striving for justice, for, you know, the fact that we are created in God's image means that we need and have to be treated a certain way, or that we should be treated a certain way based on the fact that we are created in God's image, that we reflect God's moral nature, that we reflect um, other characteristics of God, the ability to be creative, you know, there's all sorts of, the fact that we have like a rational soul is another thing that's often attributed to the image of God. So there's a whole bunch of things. Uh, and in, in, the, in essence, it's what separates us from the animal kingdom, you know, because yeah. scripture both calls humans and animals like living beings, quote unquote, but only humans are created in, in God's image. Yeah. And I was going to say like this, this to me is so huge because like in, in my frustration is when I see Christians in the attempt to stand up for what is true in one sense, diminishing people's image bearing image bearingness, if that's a word, like uh-huh. that we, we, we start equating people with pieces of garbage with pieces, like we start calling people these horrible things. And it's like, is that really how we should be treating fellow image bearers? What, no matter how wrong they are, how is it that we can continue to affirm the biblical principle of this is a valuable human being created in the image of God. We're called to love this person. At the same time, we're supposed to stand up against evil. We're supposed to punish injustice, and we're supposed to stand up for truth. Um, that is the kind of the difficult thing that we're working with here. And so I think that's the first biblical principle of recognizing that every person, no matter their gender orientation, uh, gender identity, sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, race, whatever, they are human beings created in the image of God. Let me just yeah. uh, reiterate one point you just said at the end there, um, but just the fact that, you know, whether you identify as LGBTQ or not, like you are created in the image of God and that entitles you to dignity, to worth, to be treated with respect. So even though we're talking about like the Equality Act trying to, in some sense, I'm sure the people who are behind this bill are saying, oh, we we agree with that and we're trying to affirm that. But there's also fundamental realities about how God created us that come into conflict with, you know, people's different identities that they adopt. So you know, our, our goal here is not to try and treat people as lesser than. That's not our right. goal. Our goal is to love our neighbor. We we want to love everyone, um, whether they identify as LGBTQ or not. Right. And I think that is a really good point. And, and um, because hopefully our goal as Christians is to recognize how do we take biblical truths um, that clearly call us to love all people, all people created in the image of God, yet God is also a God of justice. And justice is truth applied to relationship and treating people fairly. 
And so how do we actually get fair treatment and allowing people to have that freedom of conscience that is very strongly believed in a Christian worldview, as well as needing to stand up against evil and injustice and unjust discrimination. And so like it's it's that really difficult balance of, of how do we, uh, you know, the balancing out to how do we balance all of these out? So um, jumping to then our second biblical principle that should hopefully help uh, inform uh, and guide us in this understanding of the Equality Act and talking about sexuality and marriage is Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is talked about divorce or asked about divorce. And he answers, have you not read that he, he from who created from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So there's no longer two flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So Neil, can you kind of speak into this a little bit on how this verse in Matthew chapter 19 and Jesus's view of marriage should inform our approach to how we understand the Equality Act? Yeah, so a lot of people like to say that, you know, Jesus never talked about like gender and sexuality or like LGBTQ types of issues, but Jesus himself quotes, you know, he's speaking in the context of divorce here, but he is reaffirming the principles of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. You know, when he says that he created them male and female, that's referring to Genesis 1. And then he quotes Genesis 2 about the two becoming one flesh. And so Jesus here is laying out those two principles as a means of saying, you know, you should not, uh, you should basically shouldn't divorce or there, there should be very few instances in which you would divorce. But that, so going back to the Equality Act, it, Jesus is affirming the gender binary here. Yeah. Uh, Jesus is affirming that marriage and sexuality is meant to be in the context of marriage. You know, the two becoming one flesh is referring to in part the physical act of sex. Uh, so we need to, so Jesus here is affirming both uh, the realities of the gender binary as well as that sex is meant to be in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. Yeah. And I think one thing I like about this verse is, uh, and Greg Kokel brings up this point of when asked, like, um, you know, uh, in his new book, Tactics, he has a tactic called, I have a friend in Jesus, or what a friend I have in Jesus. And it's and it's the idea of like, in culture, not a lot of people like Christians or like the church, but a lot of people still have a high view of Jesus. And so when asked like, hey, what is your view of marriage? Or what do you believe about sexuality? Or what do you believe about, yeah, about marriage? To be able to say, oh, I have the same view as Jesus had. And then it's like, oh, what view did Jesus have? Well, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus lays it out that uh, there is one man, one woman becoming one flesh. That's the sexual component for one lifetime. Um, and so if they're going to disagree, they're disagreeing with Jesus. And a lot of people have that high view of Jesus. They don't want to disagree with Jesus. And so it's like, and I, and I think that Jesus got it right. And so if you're going to disagree with me, you're kind of going after what Jesus had to say. And so uh, hopefully that should help as well. And I see the question coming in, uh, Slam RN, we'll get to that here. Uh, in a little bit, a couple of verses left. So, okay, we have the value of human beings. We have the way that God has designed marriage to be between a man and a woman for one flesh, one lifetime. We then see what scripture has to say about sexual activity and and sexual sin. And, and there's quite a few verses that you kind of point out here, uh, but one of which uh, comes from First uh, Corinthians. And there's a lot that we could go to, but we'll just point out one. Your article points out more. Uh, where Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
and such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. So Neil, how can you kind of speak into this of how this would apply to the topic of the Equality Act and inform our decisions there? Well, first, I, I just want to say, if you read that list carefully, everyone falls somewhere on that list. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's, it, it's often used as, you know, it's one of the five verses commonly cited to that to specifically mention homosexuality. And, you know, it, that is usually the part that is highlighted and brought out in that list. But I think it's worth pointing out that everyone in there falls on that list and deserves to be condemned for their sin apart from Christ. Right. Um, and I, and I, what I love about that is that it says such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Um, so again, that's the Bible is not it, often. I think we often, or we too often go to kind of these verses that point out, you know, where specifically talks in a negative sense about homosexuality and don't talk enough about Genesis uh, the picture in Genesis of gender and sexuality. But I think it's important to also have that other component of like, you know, when you talk about Leviticus or Romans one or this verse in first Corinthians or in first Timothy one, that, you know, the Bible does specifically address homosexuality, that it does address sexual activity then says that there are boundaries that God wants to put on it for our own good. You right. know, he's not like, he's not just trying to limit what fun we can have, or he's not trying to be mean spirited. He's like, I created it for a specific purpose and I yeah. created it to be a joy and a blessing to you. And these boundaries are part of how you experience the blessing of gender and sexuality. Yeah. And I think that's good because it's, imp it's important to point out that when we look at these different political rules kind of coming down uh, against different institutions, of, of to see what those institutions were actually practicing. So I don't know about the example that you use, but I know of other examples of like Christian adoption agencies who wouldn't adopt to LGBTQ same-sex individuals, but they also wouldn't adopt to non-married opposite-sex individuals. So it's saying, look, we believe that children are best raised by a mother and father, and so we are only going to put children in that type of family. And so it's it's not that like they just are only singling out same sex couples and saying we won't adopt to you, but they also weren't adopting to opposite sex non-married couples. Right? And, and so it's interesting how I don't know, it's 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 hopefully as Christians we're applying it equally. Well, we recognize there's a there's a fundamental way to do it, there's a better way to do it and have and don't just single someone out just because of their gender, but see God's design is best and following what God's design is for these issues. Right. Like in that particular example, like their interest is what is going to be the best environment for the child to grow up in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we, there, that's the best vested interest in the child. And the government has a vested interest in making sure that children are protected and uh, grow up in a, a home with a father and a mother. Cause that, you know, sociologically and statistically that, that shows that chi children tend to do better when they have both a father and a mother in the home. Right. So that, that's, you know, it, it's not just about saying no to, one group or another, but it's about protecting children. Right. Yeah. It's, it's protecting children. And I think when it comes to this topic of sexuality, if Christians are making it saying that somehow homosexuality is the only type of sexual sin and singling that out, like that is an issue. Now, why do Christians often talk about homosexuality so much? Well, because that's the question that's asked. Like no one ever writes into my show and says, um, can you explain to me why Christians believe that adultery is wrong? Like, like we all have this common understanding of why that's wrong. And so I don't have to talk and, and convince you that cheating on your husband or wife uh, is wrong. We, we all recognize that. Um, no one writes in and says, why is incest wrong? 
like, like we don't have to talk about those things. And so what we're saying is it's not just this one thing that's getting singled out unfairly. That list includes all of us. And I, what I love to say is that we all have attractions and desires that we ought not act on. And I didn't make that up. I, you know, I think I probably heard it from like Frank Turk or someone. And the, the biblical thing is we are free to act on that or not. Our desires are maybe built in. Our desires come from our sinful nature or wherever those desires come from. But we have that freedom to either follow Christ, reject our desires, all of which, all of us have desires that we ought not act on. Um, why is it these desires somehow we need to promote just because someone has that desire? So uh, I think that's an important point to point out. Now, we're kind of moving along quickly, but again, this is a good conversation. Hopefully you guys are enjoying this. I know a couple of questions did come in that I want to get to, but you, you finish here talking about here are some principles in which we should agree. And so um, I want to just kind of work, quickly work through these principles and get your thoughts on them. The first one being affirming that gender is binary and determined biologically. Neil, that is a very controversial statement. So how is it that we can all agree and affirm gender is binary? There are only two genders and it's determined biologically. Yeah. I, I mean, these principles I led are, these are the things I think Christians should agree on. So right. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that like the world will agree with us on this. That's but a good clarification. That, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just saying that, you know, scripture, I think is clear that, um, gender is binary and uh, connected to biology. Um, and again, that goes back to Genesis one and two, and we see that throughout other parts of scripture as well. Um, but that, that was just the, um, yeah, that, that was just the first thing I, I think that we need to agree on if we want to, uh, think well on these kinds of issues. Uh, if we compromise on that, then we'll, it'll lead into all kinds of uh, bad thinking. So what would you say then to the Christian who says, hey, I am a Christian. I believe in the Bible. I affirm what it says, but I don't think gender is binary and I don't think it's determined by your biology. It's determined by um, your identity, how you feel, what you think about yourself. Uh, what would you say to that Christian? Um, I mean, I'd probably ask why they think that, but I, I mean, ultimately it comes down to, you know, where do you find that in scripture? I, mean, I can go to the text in Genesis one and two and show them how, you know, God created us male and female and how in Genesis two, that's connected to the, the, on the basis of that, we are male and female, you know, that's how marriage and sexuality are an outworking of those two things, you know, and there's other places I can, you know, we can talk about how sex and marriage are greater representations of the relationship between Christ and the church. And neither of those two things are interchangeable one for the other. Um, so I guess for me, it, I would want to have a conversation with them and try and, you know, figure out what's, what's really going on there. And, but, right. you know, I would ask them where in scripture do you find that? Yeah. I, I think that's an important point is if we are as Christians, right, if we're going back and deter and, and scripture is our authority, um, to, to challenge if someone is claiming I am a Christian, I believe scripture is an authority, then we need to go back to scripture and say, okay, biblically, where do you get this idea? Uh, if this is what's clearly taught in scripture. Uh, number two is the second thing that no matter where you fall politically, if you consider yourself a Christian, you claim that we should be affirming that marriage is between one man, one woman. And we've already talked about this quite a bit. Um, anything else you want to add here of why Christians need to agree upon that principle, no matter where they're at politically? Uh, just to point out that this does at least run into tension the fact that now that the uh, Obergefell v. Hodges decision uh, was held back in 2015 and, you know, same-sex marriage is the law of the land now that we will probably run into that conflict more often. Um, but just to say that I, I do think that as Christians, we still need to advocate that even though if, if that is the law of the land that we as Christians still need to advocate for what scripture clearly teaches about what marriage is and what marriage isn't. Um, I, 
I don't know if this can lead into a whole other uh, rabbit trip here, but our culture often just defines marriage as being solely about, you know, two people who love each other. Right. And that whole gender difference thing is not, uh, is, is no longer viewed as necessary. Yeah. Um, but biblically, like gender difference is the fundamental. You just froze. Oh no, Neil, come back. <laughs> All right, there, I think you're back. All right. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, I think um, I cut out there. You cut out just a little bit. Um, good. I think we got the most of your point. Uh, maybe this is a very last bit uh, we lost. Now, one quick question I have based on that, and again, this could probably be an entire interview, but I think there's too many rabbit trails I'm going to, which is why I'm running out of time. But um, if you can provide a short response, what I often hear from Christians is, look, I affirm that marriage is between a man and a woman, but again, this is a free country, uh, and, and why should I force my Christian values onto people who are not Christian. Uh, so is there something small that you can say here about, are you saying that just Christians should agree marriages between a man and a woman, but we should be okay with same-sex marriage outside the church? Or are we actually believing that the government should put in place the restriction as well that marriage is between a man and a woman? And how do we see that as not Christians forcing our beliefs onto other people? So the fundamental question I would ask, or two fundamental questions I would ask is, one is dealing like, what is the law? Like, what is the nature of the law itself? Like, the law is fundamentally based on morality. And so if it's not going to be a Christian morality, you know, and the second question I would ask is, do you believe Christian morality leads to human flourishing? Hmm. And if you say yes, then you, sh you should ask yourself, well, then why wouldn't I want the law to be based on a Christian morality, which will lead to human flourishing? Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything within Christian morality has to be legislated into law. But if we, if the government is going to be involved in, uh, in making laws about gender and sexuality, then I would say for the good of the citizens that it oversees and, you know, government's supposed to be a good, uh, a steward of those things, you know, then why wouldn't we want it to be based on a type of Christian morality? And yes, you can spin it as like, oh, Christians are forcing our values. But, you know, if you base it on someone else's morality, then they're forcing their values on us and everyone else. So someone's forcing their values on someone. That's the nature of government. That's the nature of law. The question is, what are you going to base it on? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you said that in a short amount of time. And I think that's a great point is that we often hear, well, Christians can't legislate their morality. And it's like, well, then we're saying secularists can legislate their morality, right? All laws are legislating someone's morality. We're asking whose morality is actually best, whose morality is actually for our good. And as Christians, we should be able to affirm and say, God's morality actually is best and leads to true human flourishing, not simply just more freedoms that can be destructive for us. I think that's really important. So the last thing we talked about here, and if there's any kind of final comment you want to make, it's kind of been the topic of that's come up many times in the show is this idea of all Christians, no matter where you are politically, should affirm that we need to protect religious liberty and the ability to obey our conscience. Any kind of final thoughts you want to share on this point? Yeah, j just to reiterate that, you know, I, I think the government's role in conscience is to take the least restrictive means because for the government to compel you to do something against your conscience is in a sense, the ultimate form of tyranny. You know, if you truly believe in your heart of hearts for something to be wrong and the government says, no, you have to do it anyway. Like it really needs a, a good reason for that to happen. And again, just reiterating the fact that our consciences aren't perfect, that there are justifiable reasons why government can sometimes do that. Um, but it, again, it needs a good reason. Yeah. And I think you pointed out well, and I'll just pull it up here. You, you mentioned some verses. And again, the links are in the description below if you want to check out uh, Neil's article that he wrote uh, titled, What is the Equality Act? But you mentioned two Bible verses. You mentioned, um, you mentioned Acts. 
uh, chapter 24, verse 16, where it says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. This idea of having this clear conscience, there's other verses that Neil points to, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 8, however, not all possess, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food and drink offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And so scripture also talking about that we uh, or people have the ability to have our consciences defiled, have wrong conscience, and therefore we that's why we do need the church to come alongside and kind of uh, help clear up the thinking that we may have that is inappropriate thinking. Um, okay, uh, before we get into questions, I know I just mentioned those verses really quick. I know you wrote more about them. Any kind of further thought you have on those two passages of the clear conscience, but also recognizing our consciences can be corrupted? Uh, I think I've said all I, I want okay. to say. Let's get to the questions. Yeah, wonderful. All right, a couple questions that came in, and then we will wrap up. Let's see if I can pull that up here. All right, so SlamRN asked a couple here. Um, there's the first one. Um, do you think that a lot of the political goals of the left are sincerely for equal rights and justice or an agenda to tear apart society, starting with the family. Because we do see a lot of attacks against the family. Um, can you, is there any way you can kind of speak into that or is that kind of not knowing the motivation? Uh, I mean, for any individual, I would never want to like put a motivation on them. I, I find that the more I get to know government officials that most of them are trying to do what they think is right. Um, even if they think the right thing to do is to tear apart the family or to deconstruct <laughs> notions of like the gender binary or, you know, what is the nuclear family? You know, they see those things as being a way to work towards equal rights and justice. So those two things don't necessarily need to be in conflict with, with one mm. another. Um, they, they could be both. Well, and I think, again, I think you made a great point and that's why I think worldview is so vitally important. Because your worldview is going to inform you what is actually going to be lead to flourishing, a lead to those things. And so very rarely do people act against their worldview, right? In the sense of what they, like your worldview is informing you what's valuable, what you believe is valuable is going to determine, you know, your actions. And so um, by someone's actions, you can often see what they believe. And so, you know, very rarely is someone going to violate what they believe to be true. And that's why sometimes we have to take that step back and say, is this worldview actually accurate? that's leading to believing we need to just deconstruct gender binary systems. Um, their worldview says, yes, that is necessary. That's gonna lead to true human flourishing. I'm trying to help people. And so I think sometimes if we do get in those relationships, like you mentioned, being able to take that step back and go, hold on, but there's the, the fundamental question has to be answered. Is this worldview, is this approach the right approach? And sometimes we stay yeah. at the, 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 the surface level, or we stay at the, 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 the legal level of what they're trying to do rather than going down below the surface and saying, why is the, what worldview do they have that's informing this? And how do I communicate that worldview difference? Yeah. And, and it's important to realize that the worldview that they operate from views the gender binary as oppressive, you know, yeah. and by finding, fighting against the gender binary, they're fighting against oppression. They're fighting for justice. They're fighting for equality and equity and all these things that sound good, but you know, we, we have to realize, again, it comes back to scripture and God places limitation, limitations on these kinds of things, and he does it for our flourishing and for our good. 
Yeah. And again, that's where the worldview comes in. And you're mentioning of like, how are we created? Like, what is the purpose of life? If the purpose of life is to be free from all outside factors, then yeah, let people believe whatever they want and get rid of this system that says you're either this or this and forces you into this mold. That's postmodernism coming out in full force of you are whatever you think. There's no objective truth that should inform your decisions. You just go for it versus realizing, no, God has created us and there's an objective reality of how I need to live and act. And I think, um, you know, uh, Slammer, and kind of going along to your question as well, I think what I want to do personally is to give someone the benefit of the doubt. And this is what I often talk about on my channel that's really frustrating is when atheists specifically come on my channel and go, you liar, you're lying, you're lying, you're lying. And I'm like, Dude, to lie means you are intentionally deceiving someone by telling them something is true that, that you know is not true. Um, by definition, I'm not lying. I could be mistaken. I could be wrong, but I'm not lying to you. I'm telling you what I honestly believe is right. And I wish that people would come on my channel and assume that's what I'm trying to do. That I'm that I'm that I'm maybe they that 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 I'm honestly mistaken and try to understand why I have this mistake rather than jumping on assuming the worst about me, assuming I'm lying. And so because I don't know these different political leaders, I don't know their true heart and what they're doing, why they're doing it, um, why not? just assume they're actually doing it for sincere reasons, doing what they honestly believe is best, but that they're honestly mistaken. And then how can I, in kind of my teacher attitude, like if I have a student who's honestly mistaken, I treat that student so differently than just blasting them and calling them out. It's coming alongside them and saying, okay, where, where's the disconnect? Why are you not seeing this? Why do you think this way? And I think that's how we're called as Christians. I think as we are called to be in relationship with people to get to know people. And that's what I wish um, Christians would do more is, is understand and kind of give people that benefit of the doubt. And I know I get attacked a lot, I, but that's at least what my kind of position has been on this is let's, why not give people the benefit of the doubt that they're doing it for sincere reasons and then believe that they're sincerely wrong and then try to figure out the most loving, compassionate way to, to correct that because it does need to be corrected. Um, Going along with that last question here, unless any come in here in the last minute, uh, Samarin also said um, that she hopes that you can address how legislators may try to sneak in parts, sneak in parts of the Equality Act. So uh, you often hear from this. I think I, I I don't know if this is exactly what she's referring to, but I hear about this as far as like, well, you have like the stimulus bill, but then there's all this extra stuff snuck in that gets passed along. It's like, why can't we just pass something simple? So is, is there something here that you know more specifically that she might be referring to of how they're trying to sneak certain things into the Equality Act or sneak the Equality Act into other things? Yeah, so the Equality Act has been around since 2015. And during some years, they have tried to sneak like, certain parts of the Equality Act into other pieces of legislation. And it's, again, it's like you're saying, there's these omnibus bills that, you know, are thousands of pages long and, you know, trying to collect together all these different various facets. And, you know, it, it's unfortunately, it's how Washington, D.C. and a lot of other legislatures tend to operate because it, it's so hard for them to get anything passed nowadays that they just have to throw everything into one bill and hope that they get the votes to pass it. But yeah, that... Yeah, the, the Equality Act okay. has been tried to have passed uh, yeah, in okay. that way. Yeah, good. And yeah, so wonderful. And just to respond to, to the comment there, it's like, yeah, if we, do know if we do know the motivation of someone, then we absolutely can address that motivation. So, uh, yes. and I, I've given this example before of like, if I have a student who's cheating on a test, and I know for a fact that they cheated, I'm going to address them very differently. I, I know you're lying to me. 
I know that you know you cheated. You know that I know you cheated. Like I'm addressing that person very differently because I do know mo the motivation. I do know that they're being dishonest. And so there is a different mm -hmm. way that I approach that student than one that I that I honestly believe is honestly mistaken. Um, and if I don't know the motivation, that's where I try to give them that benefit of the doubt. But yeah, if you know, if they've come out and said, here's my goal, this is my goal, this is what I'm trying to do, then we obviously can address that in a slightly different way. Well, Neil, um, you have another article, and I just want to point people to that because you often hear this idea that, well, Christians, you are on the wrong side of history. Uh, you're going down, and I think that you have another article that I wanted to talk about that so wonderfully addresses this issue. Unfortunately, we are quite a bit over time already, and um, but I want to just point people to that. It's in the description below, uh, the second article, Ar Neil's most recent article, actually, you published it yesterday. Um, is there a right side of history? And so I want to direct people there as well. Um, and then just kind of finish, giving you the opportunity, um, any kind of last words that you want to share or kind of uh, places that you want to point people to check out more of what you are doing? Uh, yeah, I just would encourage Christians to keep being engaged in the political sphere. Like I, I know that it, it can be difficult when we don't, um, yeah, when, when those in power are unfavorable to our ideas and our worldview. But I, I think part of being a faithful Christian is to be involved in the culture around us and to do so in a way which is winsome, which is a truly representative of how God looks at us, how he loves us, how he loves our neighbors, um, and to do so in a way which uh, represents his truth as well. Uh, so speaking the truth in love, uh, as Ephesians says. So I just want to encourage Christians to keep doing that. Wonderful. And um, you guys can check out neilharden.com, not org, neilharden.com uh, for more information there. And so, uh, Neil, thank you so much for taking this time and helping us understand a little bit better what the Equality Act is and how the Christian worldview should inform our position about it. Thank you. God be with you. All right, everybody, thanks for joining. Thank you so much for being here. Slam RN and JCon45. All of you who are listening after the fact, I hope that you have appreciated this. And if you have learned, uh, please share it with a family, friend, like it, subscribe, download whatever it is that you are doing and how you are participating, as well as know that there are many other conversations that you can check out. Some will pop up right here on other cultural issues and relevant topics to help you better know, defend, and faithfully live out the Christian worldview. Continue to think deeply about God and Jesus because they are worth thinking about. Thank you guys so much for being here. And next week, hey, next week is the end of the month live Q&A. Join me. Let's have a conversation about some of these things. You can call in or you can send in your questions. Uh, that'll be a fun conversation as well. So let me just tell you right now, I don't think the book is right here. Nope, it's not. Um, the next interview afterwards is going to be on the value of human life. And that's going to be a topic with that's uh, coming up after that. So with that, have a wonderful rest of your day, guys. See you all later. Bye, everybody. Won't hesitate to follow